to the Renewable Generation, a podcast about climate and energy issues by young people for all people. My name is Kelly Jang, and I'm joined today here by my lovely co-host, Steve Chan. Steve, how are you doing on this fine Monday evening? I'm doing good. I'm drying off. I'm, uh, you know, the, the last of the bomb cyclone rain has, has now uh, dried off. And, you know, as a, as a Californian, I can't help but complain because the weather's not perfect, but also rejoice because California needs water. I'm always happy when California gets water. Um, I'm, I'm still a little bit shook because I was just, uh, I was walking my roommate's dog and I was walking outside and like tree branches, I live next to this like huge park and these giant tree branches were like swaying in the wind and one of them actually cracked and broke off and fell like next to me on the path. And it was pretty intense. Like I kind of got scared by the sound, and I like had like swerved, actually towards the branch. I didn't know which way to swerve, and it could have been bad. But um, you know, luckily it didn't hit me. Um, so all all that I had to suffer from that ordeal was dealing with my with the dog's muddy muddy paw prints that got all over the house. Um, so you know, relatively unscathed after everything, but definitely definitely a little shook. How about you, Kelly? Yeah, we also got hit by this bomb cyclone of rain. Um, yesterday, I think, was the day with the most wind. So, the, it w- like, as far as, like, storms go, it wasn't really that impressive. But I think over Saturday night, there was some pretty extreme rain and wind. Um, the power at my parents' house went out for the whole day. They texted me. They're like, oh, our power's out. And then they, like, went for a walk on the trail. There's, like, oh, and it's, like, a bike trail. They're, like, oh, there's, like, a whole tree in the trail. That's probably what cut the power line. And so, actually, power outages um, here in Washington are not that uncommon, um, just from, like, trees falling on the distribution lines. Um, So sometimes it takes a while to clear all those up. Um, And luckily, my house never lost power, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also went out for a run with my friends on Saturday. They're like, oh, we need to do this long run before race next weekend. So I like went out with them and like for the last hour and a half, it was pouring rain. And I was like, okay. Like, you know, once you accept that you're going to be soaked and once you're completely soaked, you can't get more soaked. So it's kind of fine. (laughs) Um, so that was, that was fun. I also forgot to mention last week that I know we were talking about like our week, our week caps, like what have we done? And I didn't mention, I feel like I have to mention it on the podcast that I did a lightsaber dueling class. It was really cool. It was just like, it was like kendo, you know, like those Japanese like wooden swords where you like strike and stuff and you have very like projected moves. We did that, but like with lightsabers and it was legit. It was like the lightsabers were like $150, $200 equipments they would, like, light up and make sounds when you'd hit, and they were, like, super satisfying because they'd go, like, woom, woom, and it was, it was, it was, like, I had to, I had to brag about it to you, <laughs> the listeners that we do have, um, you know, should check it out. It was, it's so funny because after the show, Steve texted me, he's like, oh, I forgot to mention that I did a lightsaber duel, I have to do that to get, like, street cred with our listeners. I need the, I need the clout, you know? <laughs> Um, so to the, to the listeners that are, that are, uh, hearing me, uh, talk about my last weekend's plans, you might hear some, some additional laughter going on in the background. And that's, that's our, our new guest this, this week. Um, Benny Corona, Benny, how, how you doing? How, how has your past couple of weeks been? How, how's the bomb cyclone treating you? Man, it's, uh, it's been quite the last couple of weeks. I started a new job with the state of California. So the public advocate's office. And yeah, it's just been adjusting 
to that. And then I made a move. I moved from my hometown to a bigger city here in Tulare County in, in the Central Valley. Um, and just getting adjusted to post-grad life. Graduated very recently this last 2020 in the last semester. So 2021 in the last semester. So, yeah, just been adjusting to my new normal and actually working from home. Um, you know, I legit work from home. So it's uh, it's been very interesting. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And, and we're super pleased to have you on the show this week. Um, the reason we have Benny on is that this week we're going to be talking about sustainable agriculture. And specifically, um, California has a set of policies that we're going to dive into um, that, you know, in California, the, the core, the epicenter of agriculture is going to be the Central Valley. And I thought, who better to talk about the Central Valley than Benny Corona? So, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> of course. So I'm not, I'm not just tuning his horn for no reason. Here's a quick intro on who Benny is. Um, so first of all, Benny and I met through my friend Josh Albano, who in last week's episode I shouted out um, at his birthday party that we were at when he took two shots of Jameson and was <laughs> dancing like a glistening you know, bomb cyclone himself on the dance floor. Um, so I met Benny through Josh and, you know, I'm super, super glad that, um, that we met. Um, so Benny and Josh met at the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley, where they both, both are super smart, uh, brainiacs when they're not taking shots at Jameson and, uh, learning about public policy and how to, how to be, you know, our public servants in, in the future. <laughs> well, Hey, um, you say the future, but Benny is a public, our public servant now. That's right. The future is, the future is here. So, so Benny, a quick background on him is that he, he's a student migrant farm worker in the central Valley of California. He started helping to support his family in grade school. And by middle school, he and his younger brother had actually, um, doubled their family's income. So this guy is no stranger to hard work. He, um, his work with farm workers empowered him and inspired him to pursue higher education and to use his privilege to one day return and make change to his community. And that one day is, you know, today. Um, he's also worked as a community organizer. He's worked in electoral politics and community development and with various civic engagement and political advocacy organizations. Most recently, Benny worked for the California's governor's uh, Central Valley Regional Office and now the California Public Advocates Office, where he continues to advocate for the interests of California residents and our most vulnerable communities. He has represented Central Valley communities in various capacities at the federal, state, and local level, and he was also recently featured in an interview with Telemundo a while back when he was speaking about the COVID vaccine and vaccination rates in the Central Valley. So this is a guy who's no stranger to the limelight either, but, you know, not, not on a stage as prestigious as, as this one, obviously. <laughs> just kidding um he benny is also committed to public service because of the love and passion he has for the communities that raised him and that he comes from as a young farm worker benny witnessed and experienced the many injustices that his communities go through every day through public service benny has found a channel where he can express his frustrations with systemic injustice while at the same time using his experiences to ex and expertise to change policy and social economic public health and pop and political outcomes for the central valley so, so that's Benny in a nutshell. Um, he's also a very buff man. I see you on the Instagram stories all the time working out and uh, lifting many weights. Um, we, can't, we can't let our, our audience not know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I love it, man. I, I, I'm very passionate about health as well. So. Well, we really appreciate you taking time. Well, Steve, Steve is also a big uh, fitness buff. We do have to work out together sometime, man. That's... That's that's on our that's on our list. 
Yeah, yeah. So I guess let's get started with the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm loving this bromance, but at some point we got to dive into some actual uh, topics. <laughs> um, um, so first we'll do a quick intro to some um, issues with agriculture. So some might know the Central Valley as the quote-unquote salad uh, bowl of the U.S. because it's where the vast majority of fruits and vegetables um, that feed the entire country are grown. Um, and it's actually pretty interesting, like back in, you know, the early 2010s when there was the whole drought in California, there were all these moralizing articles written by people on the East Coast. Then there are the articles kind of being like, okay, but do you eat produce that was grown in California? Like you probably do. And so the issues um, that uh, face agriculture in the Central Valley affect all Americans and ultimately, you know, everyone around the world. Um, so just a quick overview of some ways that agriculture contributes to global warming. Um, so first, the one of the big ones is just the production of chemical fertilizers. So for a lot of agriculture, there's, you know, nitrogen fertilizer that's applied. And this is um, the main active ingredient in that is ammonia, NH3. And so Without diving into too much detail, basically you have to use like high heat to combine nitrogen with hydrogen to create uh, nitrogen with three hydrogens attached to it. And in a lot of cases, this hydrogen is actually produced by cracking natural gas or methane. Not great. Um, that causes carbon emissions and the creation of the heat to make fertilizer also creates carbon emissions. So that in and of itself is like, uh, it's like actually like a few percentage points of the total global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it might be just be like one or something, but it's like a whole number. Um, and then also the over-application of nitrogen fertilizer um, results in the emissions of nitrous oxide emissions just from it, like off gases of it from the nitrogen. Um, so that has 300 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. So one N2O molecule is equivalent to 300 CO2s, which is a lot. Um, and this is also exacerbated by things like um, uh, the fact that, you know, animals, particularly cattle, are raised in many cases on feedlots um, where basically their poop just piles into big piles and then they're put in like this lagoon and they kind of just off gas nitrous oxide into the air. It's disgusting and bad for the climate. And um, one of the policies that we're talking about later, the California Healthy Soils Initiative, one of the things they're trying to do is like actually take this manure, mix it with municipal green waste, basically compost. And by spreading that over the fields, that's one way that you can um, increase carbon sequestration in the soil. And because the nitrogen from the, you know, cow poo is going into the soil, that significantly decreases the amount of off-gassing of nitrous oxide relative to if you just lift it in a pit. And there's also, you know, methane from the cow's belching, but that's a topic for another day. So those are just a few um, issues with uh, global warming and agriculture there's many more but those are kind of some of the ones that are most relevant um steve yeah and i would just want to put to put things into perspective agriculture as a whole contributes to about 10 percent of all u.s carbon emissions so just to give you an idea greenhouse gas emissions not carbon, carbon. carbon emission equivalent <laughs> yeah yes so just to give you an idea of the scope there um so yeah so that's so that's like kind of the idea of of agriculture and how it affects the climate and the impact uh, on the environment. Um, so in California, um, agriculture pretty much means the Central Valley. So, so Benny, can you, can you give us a quick primer on the Central Valley? Like what, what is, what are the, the scope that we're looking at? What, what's the land mass? What's the agricultural output? What's the, 
political makeup of this region. All right. So a summary of the Central Valley agriculture and political landscape. I'm, I'm going to uh, try my best, but I think number one is, uh, I think um, you guys touched on it a little bit. The Central Valley is the country's most productive agricultural region. It produces over 40% of the country's fruits, nuts, and um, other food items. Uh, just 1% of the land mass is of the U.S. farmland is represented there in the Central Valley. Uh, 1% of that, yet it, it produces one-fourth of, of our agricultural output in the United States. Um, so, you know, we have this very productive agricultural region. It's uh, really prosperous economically for its stakeholders, for industrial agriculture, for uh, big farmers, uh, and for anyone, uh, any, anyone that's involved in the food industry. But the farm workers themselves, the agricultural workers themselves, is really good for the people at the very top that, that are owners, land barons, that own companies, these sorts of uh, stakeholders. Uh, but the, the irony that, what, that we always share from the Central Valley is, especially people that come from this farm worker background like I do, is that the people that are responsible for the healthy foods and vegetables in our dinner tables, ironically, are also people that uh, those kinds of foods are inaccessible to them. And so that comes with a lot of health problems for these sorts of workers in the Central Valley. Uh, but what we're trying to do with sustainable agriculture and the Healthy Soils Program, and the vision is, uh, we're known for being this very productive agricultural region that feeds the nation and has an impact in food security for the world. But we can also be known for being a leader in fighting climate change with soil health practices by sequestering carbon, by using the tools that we already have, the agricultural landscape, that the very powerful and productive agricultural landscape that we already have to take carbon from the atmosphere, put it in our soils, and reduce the amount of carbon emissions. And it's already been known. There's some studies out there. Uh, I can't cite them right now. But there's studies showing that if all the world's farmers use soil health practices, that could significantly reduce the amount of human-induced carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions um, many years from now. So obviously, that's not realistic to probably have all farmers be involved in carbon sequestration. But with healthy soils in California, we are starting those sorts of efforts. And hopefully, uh, and, and we'll talk about this later in, in the conversation, but hopefully this has a ripple effect and other states get involved and it becomes, becomes federal policy. U.S. takes a lead. Hopefully other countries join in and we have a powerful tool to mitigate climate change. And I didn't talk about politics, but yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. I was gonna, I was, I was gonna say no, no, no. I was gonna say that you know, what if we just brought all the world's farmers to California and make them all work in the Central Valley? But then you know, if we did that, we might have even more of an immigration problem that we already have. And you know, you got to start to see some of this backlash that that you might see in the Central Valley. So what, what, what you know, in a hypothetical situation where that would happen, what kind of you know political backlash would you see in the Central Valley, given it's like politics? Uh, with soil carbon sequestration? Or I guess uh, immense immigration <laughs> to the Central Valley. Well, what I would say is, first of all, like you could have people go there and learn about soil mm -hmm. carbon sequestration, but like you can't have them all farming the land because 
Like it's one percent of the U.S. Space. land. It's not. It's not gonna. It's not gonna feed the whole world, even with the best agricultural practices. Yeah. So uh, I mean, how would how would farmers react to other folks wanting to grow food in the Central Valley that are not um, from the Central Valley? Sorry, I'm trying to understand the question. Yeah. No. No. Sorry. It's just a dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So can you tell us? Well, I mean, I mean, like. It, it, uh, the question that Benny asked, I'm yeah. curious to see what his answer would be. For soil carbon sequestration? Let's say, let's say if we had a program where, where California was leading the way on healthy soils, but then we also included a, a kind of a come and learn kind of program where they said um, farmers from around the country or perhaps around the world would come to California and you know, learn about it from these farmers themselves. Like, how do you think the communities in the Central Valley would react to that? Oh, I think it'd be positive. Um, just from qualitative data that I have talking to farmers about healthy soils, uh, I haven't received any negative feedback about using it, about showcasing it, being involved in demonstration projects that fund those sorts of things just to try them out. Um, so I think people would welcome it. Um, like I said, I think we're already very, pr we're very proud as a region to be quote unquote, the bread basket, food basket, salad bowl of, you know, of California. And I would think, you know, I would assume that people would welcome that, especially if we're now known, if we, if we have the potential to be known as the leader in um, soil carbon sequestration. I was going to say, I think that's something that cuts across partisan lines. So um, actually, when I was at Berkeley, I was briefly involved with the Silver Lab, which did a lot of the fundamental science behind um, the Healthy Soils Initiative. So it was really interesting, like going to do field work, you like drive past these, I mean, this was like October 2016. So this is like, you drive past and it's like, ah, like Trump 2016, like the first time around. And you're like, hmm, I wonder if these people would be in favor of, you know, things that have to do with climate change. But then you don't mention climate change a lot of the time when you talk to them. You just talk about healthy soils, you know, carbon sequestration, the benefits that that brings. Like, I mean, for these cattle ranchers in particular, it's like, oh, if you apply the compost to the soil, it actually helps the grass grow better. So the cat and it tastes better. The cows eat more. They get fatter. The ranchers are happy because not they're getting paid to do this, and their cows get bigger, so they can sell them for more money. And the grass stays greener for longer, which is just good all around. And you can actually see like the difference between the treatment plots. You're like, oh yeah, this is the hill where we this is like the treatment, so you can see it's green. This other one we didn't, and it's brown. Um, and so I think with these policies that are like very kind of tailored to the local region, um, it kind of cuts across party lines because it's something that like I mean I mentioned a few weeks ago the uh, Washington uh, biochar project that's something that's like championed by Republicans so I think it's really cool that we can have these bipartisan climate policies yeah I mean and and one way that I think about it too is that it just makes it's just like common sense to you know use these tools that are already there that is going to help the environment, is going to mitigate climate change for the folks that are interested in that. But ultimately, that is going to, what's most important, what I've found is most important to farmers, small, medium-sized farmers, and even industrial ag, what they care about is their bottom line, is the, is the money, is that they can support themselves financially growing food. Um, so if we can give those incentives to mitigate climate change, which and they will adopt them. We've already seen this with California Healthy Soils. All the funding is gone because farmers adopted 
these they're adopting these practices. So uh, the interest is there, and I think it's just a matter of proving. Um, so this next year is $75 million in the budget, the state budget for healthy soils. And then the year after that is going to be $85 million proposed. So if all those get used up and then we have the metrics that show how much emissions are reduced through that, I think it's um, – right now we see it, I see it as a big winner. So, But even more money, it's even, even a better winner. So hopefully the federal government picks it up too. So you, um, I am curious on one, one of the things that Kelly had touched on. Um, is Do you find that farmers in the Central Valley are turned off by the words climate change and you have to kind of be sensitive and, and kind of tiptoe around using that kind of language? Because I can, I can definitely relate to that experience doing um, solar development um, in Minnesota. Um, I've done, done a lot of agricultural solar developments where we actually – we're, you know, using that same farmland, but, you know, granted a lot less productive than California's, but farmland nonetheless. And we would go up to farmers and say, hey, we would like to develop solar here. And we pretty much have to avoid saying climate change whatsoever. Um, and you have to just say, like, hey, we're just going to pay you more money. You're going to be more, you know, more profitable. It's going to help your bottom line. And, you know, and energy independence and use certain buzzwords. Um, and I, and I was always curious about, you know, if that would also translate to California, which is, you know, one of the liberal, most liberal states in the, in the entire country. Um, but I don't know, is that the case in Central Valley as well? Yeah, that's exactly, uh, I haven't talked to a lot of farmers, but that's exactly the language that I use, that I use with anyone from there, just because, um, climate change is a, um, to be honest, you know, and just going to be honest about it, I feel like the folks that are at the forefront of, of mitigating climate change and that really care about this issue, uh, the intellectual accessibility of that is hasn't reached working class communities as much in the Central Valley, um, especially folks that already have this idea, you know, have bought into conspiracy theories about climate change, that it's just a government made up idea uh, to control people's behavior. Uh, it's because that's the messaging that I see all the time around my community. So definitely, I, um, as a general rule, always very uh, careful about how I navigate the language that I use, especially when I talk about climate change. And I've found that that's the approach to take. Is you know, it's it's about education. So you start with the way that people are open to you. So yeah, let's talk about bottom lines. Let's talk about the environment. Like the environment is pretty nonpartisan too. I mean, people care about the environment. It's just, they don't always make the association with climate change. Um, but, you know, you know, talking about things that they're open to already. And then from there, you sort of keep educating. And, and eventually, you know, you have someone else that realizes the impact climate change is having in their communities so like a lot of people don't make the connection between the droughts that we are having in california and climate change or the connection between the heat waves that we are having in california and climate change and the wildfires that are happening how more intense they're coming in climate change so um you know there's an inaccessibility there uh, and that has to do with education rates. We have some of the worst education rates right there in the Central Valley. And, you know, people that are mostly living paycheck to paycheck, and that's sort of how they live their lives, don't have the time to philosophize about these really complex issues. And so, yeah, um, it's a, you know, I, I got to be careful with it or else it's like I'm talking to a wall. It's really, um, it's fascinating because I, I think that a lot of those farmers, um, 
you know, they're, they, you know, as you say, as you mentioned, like frontline communities, like, you know, depending on agriculture and, you know, crop output for your livelihood, and then you have, you know, increasingly hotter and drier summers and potentially, um, and I don't know if this is the case, but it, I, I imagine it would impact, you know, crop yield year to year. Um, and it's also like these, these frontline communities that are facing those damages are also one of the best equipped to actually help us solve the problem, drawing down carbon, sequestering it into the soil, and simultaneously making the soil more productive and, um, you know, produce more, more crops in the future. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a, another, another case of, uh, we don't have to agree on the problems that we can still work together on the solutions. Like we don't have to talk about climate change being the issue here, but we can say, we want to pay you to, you know, make your soil healthier and still work towards the same solution at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that's very obvious to everybody. Our soil health in the Central Valley is, is horrendous because of unsustainable practices over time. And it just makes sense. You know, you, we all want healthier soils. It's better for our crop yields. It's better for our farming businesses. It's also good for the environment. And like we said, it's better soil uh, to sequester carbon. So uh, I understand that soil... Um, is actually the world's second, uh, no, the world's largest carbon sink. Terrestrial carbon sink. Terrestrial carbon sink. So, uh, you know, if we can just change, create healthier soils, you know, that benefits, uh, you know, it benefits us that, that, that want to deal with climate change, the youth, because we're going to have to deal with that when we get older and our children and our children's children. But also it helps the, the, the people that, that own that land. Uh, be better off. Yeah, and to that point, there's more um, soil, more carbon in the soil than in the atmosphere and all the plants combined. So that's pretty cool. Um, let me open this thing real fast so I can tell you how much it is. Um, so there's about uh, there's about uh, 1,600 gigatons of carbon in the soil. Um, it's about eight or 900 in the atmosphere and about 600 in the biosphere. So the amount of carbon in the soil is like about the same as the atmosphere and all the plants combined and slightly more. And so if we could, you know, kind of increase that by a little bit. And in fact, like the poor soil management practices have also caused carbon emissions. Like the reason why these soils are able to take up carbon is because with essentially like tilling the soil, you're kind of like exposing all of the stuff underneath to the air. It gets oxidized and kind of like off gases and goes away. And that's, you know, that topsoil, the off gassing of carbon dioxide from topsoil is actually like a pretty big source of carbon emissions. So just by stopping that and then reversing that, that could be a big, you know, part of the solution. The Renewable Generation is brought to you by Bright Power, the premier provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators. We enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, we're hiring. Want to be part of the solution like Healthy Soils that's working to solve climate change? Um, check out our job openings by going to brightpower.com and clicking on the careers tab. And now we're back talking about water in the Central Valley with Benny. Um, so I'm sure uh, both of you have seen some of those pictures where um, 
So like groundwater uh, overdrafting is a big issue and it's causing like huge amounts of subsidence in the Central Valley. So I'm sure you've seen the pictures where it's like they have like this power pole where they're like, oh, this is where the ground was in like 1978 and it sunk like 20 feet. Um, and I'm wondering like, you know, I think California has had a few wet years, but like the mega drought that, you know, multi-year drought that we had in the early 2010s, I'm sure that something like that is going to be happening again at some point. And is there any like preparation for, you know, what they're going to do when that happens? Because the groundwater is not an infinite resource. So I'm just curious to learn more. Yeah. So what legislators are trying to do that are trying to secure water for industrial agriculture and farmers in general is uh, we have the front front current canal I forget the name but basically we have crumbling um, infrastructure aquifers canals that siphon water towards farms uh, and so this has been the, the big issue for a lot of farmers and, and folks that are uh, trying to get water for industrial agriculture is uh, this complaint about crumbling infrastructure. And I would say that's part of the problem of why, yeah, we have a limited sor source of water. Um, and some of it isn't, you know, going to those farms because of crumbling infrastructure. Uh, but there's, a, there's also the issue of climate change. I mean, if it's really frustrating that, you know, I'm not going to name the, name the names, but a lot of legislators from both sides of the aisle, both parties, both of the major parties, conveniently live out that these droughts are being exacerbated by climate change. And they're becoming more intense because of climate change. And in the direction we're heading, and if, they're, if those folks that are representing the Central Valley aren't talking about climate change, we're not going to be a part of the solution. It is a finite resource, water itself. And there's competing interests, right? We're talking about industrial agriculture. That's one interest. But also the clean drinking water interest, the residential interest. There's a million people in California without clean drinking water in their faucets. Most of those folks are there in the Central Valley. And those are farm workers, working class community members, people that are already vulnerable and don't have political power, the sort of political power these other interests have uh, to get water in their faucets and that it's clean. So, yeah, these competing interests for water have turned it, uh, uh, have, have made it so difficult to, uh, you know, to support all the different stakeholders. You know, we, it's almost like they're competing. Like, you know, there's folks that want clean drinking water for for the residents, and then there's folks that want water for the farms. Um, and, and and it feels like they can't coexist, uh, but they should. And that's that's the solution that, that folk, that, you know, the legislators should be working on. Um, not just one approach. You know, there's the climate change approach. There's so many different variables to the water issues that we have and the water droughts that we have. So... Um, yeah, that would be what I want to get out of, you know, what I want to share is that, um, you know, we all need to, we, you know, it's very cheesy, but we all need to work together with the water issue in the Central Valley, like all stakeholders in the Central Valley. And you can't conveniently live out something just because um, it's politically controversial mm -hmm. or something. It seems um, like essentially what you're talking about is like competition um, over a dwindling resource and a resource that, you know, I don't think. There's, there doesn't seem to be, like, a long-term solution to us uh, making it bountiful in California. Um, I mean, don't we, like, import the majority of our water from, like, over the Rockies? Um, you know, is it Colorado? 
Mm, no. The, I mean, so the Colorado River is like we – I don't think California, the majority of California's water comes from that, but it is like a significant portion like for Southern California. Um, I think most of the water in the Central Valley comes from the um, San Joaquin and what's the other river? Um, it's S, Sacramento? Some, some other river. There's like two major rivers where um, it's like from the Sierra right. snowpack essentially. And so one of the things that they're trying to figure out is like, oh, with climate change, the snowpack is going to be way low. So what are we going to do? And the only thing that could potentially replace that is like the groundwater. But then like I think – it's it's like there's some stats out there like oh LA could use could fulfill half of its water needs with the water that falls in LA, but because they don't have the infrastructure to capture it, it's just like oh it just flows down the LA River into the ocean. Like we don't do a good job of capturing this rainwater. Like the rainwater that's falling right now, are we saving it to use during the summer? I mean, it rained like three inches, which is insane, and that's like we don't have the infrastructure to capture that. And that's like a huge amount of water that's, you know, kind of being wasted. And I think this like issue with the clean drinking water, that is such a false dichotomy. Like the amount of water that needs that, like even for a million people, like providing clean drinking water, that amount of water is nothing compared to the amount that's used by agriculture. And that's like the fact that they're, they're like, oh, but we need to like water the crops. First of all, you don't even need, like, you can use gray water to water crops. I'm pretty sure. Like you can, like, it doesn't have to be like super pure, clean water if it's going on something that you're going to cook later, or you can like purify it a little bit. But like, it's, I mean, to me, it's like almost unjustifiable that the fact that we need to use water to grow crops is like used as an excuse to not provide people with clean drinking water. Yeah, I, well, I sh- I shouldn't put it that way. It's it's more like what are what are they pro- what are the legislators prioritizing, and they seem to want to prioritize, you know, water for 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 farms instead of you know it's yeah, and it's crazy. A million people don't have clean drinking water in their homes. So you you would you would think that that's what they would prioritize, but unfortunately, it's you know it's another part of the political dynamic in in that region, is that industrial agriculture has so much wealth. And so much power. Those are the Trump flags that you see there. It's not. So that's the other thing. The Central Valley is not as conservative as it's made out to what as it seems. It's just the people that own the land, that have the most wealth, and they can share their political messaging. Do it, and the people that have small homes that are living paycheck to paycheck, they just don't have, you know, they don't have big land masses where they can put those kinds of signs up. And so they're kind of hidden away in the in the little rural communities, um, and you know my 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 sort of thing is uh, we can prove it during political campaigns, and I feel we have proven it in 2018 when we flipped the congressional district in the Central Valley from Republican to Democrat, and uh, for the first time since 1981, I believe, and that was because of the groundwork that was done, and we knew. It's it's not what it seems. It's just that communities of color, immigrants, low-income folks just do not participate in, politi- in in voting as much. And so there's only one way around that, and that is you, you facilitate voting for them. You help them out. Um, but I ca- kind of went on the rant there. We love to hear it. Your passion's shining through there, Benny. One thing that I was curious about was this idea. So this is like I'm viewing this from an economic lens from – at, at, so there's a competition over scarce a scarce resource of water, um, which I would you know un- I imagine eventually would drive 
Right, so it's going to get worse, and it's going to drive the costs of things up, right? It's going to drive the cost of water up. It's going to make um, claiming water more expensive. And I think at some edge of some some margins of the agricultural beast that that lives within Central Valley, some farmland is going to drop from productive farmland to non-productive farmland, right? And what what I am starting to think about is like, what can we start to do? What can we start to plan for those edge cases for those unproductive farmland? Is there is there ways that we can start to develop like solar fields there's wind wind farms um you know and and maybe also have some um what's, what's the word for it agrivoltaics where you have you know solar panels on top of you know farmland and then grow some some lettuce underneath um and you know have some sheep that get get to hang out in the in the shade of the tur- wind turbine is that is that a thing that we're starting to see in the central valley or is that all just a theoretical talk no the, um Definitely, farmland has already been uh, bought out so that people can build solar, so that they can build wind. Uh, Kern County, actually, the Central Valley, we have the biggest wind farm, I think, in the world. I mean, not the world, but in the United States is right there in Kern County. Um, I forget the name, but, you know, we can Google that afterwards, but I'm pretty sure that's true. So, yeah, that's already happening. And that's sort of my dream for the Central Valley is, um, you know, instead of being known as this really unequal uh, in just food system, uh, you know, it transform into a leader for combating climate change uh, with renewables and with carbon soil sequestration and, you know, set the standard for what that looks like. Because it also fixes a lot of our, some of the bad public health issues that we have. We have the worst air quality in the country. Again, we don't have, a million people don't have clean drinking water in California. And, you know, this sort of renewable vision, this whole sequestration vision would actually fix those problems, if, if not reverse them. Absolutely. Um, and that's like the importance of environmental justice that we we're always, you know, that we hear a lot about is like, uh, how do you actually start to implement environmental justice solutions on the ground? And Central Valley is like one of those, one of like the the best places in California that we can start to address that. And just to fact check, the 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 Alta Wind Cent Energy Center in the United States is located in Kern County. It was the largest in the world as of 2013, and it's now the third largest in the world. Um, it produces 1,548 megawatts of power, um, and it's now third to a wind park in India, and then number one is a wind park in China. Yeah, I think um, on another note about the water issue, I think it's really interesting to see, like, even four years ago driving through, this was not in the Central Valley, this was, like, more northern, but I was, you see those things that, like, spray water, like, out to the side and, like, go around in circles. I'm like, how is that even legal to do that, like, in the middle of the day, in the summer in California? Like, why are they not all using drip irrigation um, already? And I think, like, the amount of water that you're just, like, wasting by spraying is just uh, inhumane um and i think just like just like those water parks like i i always whenever i see the water parks like hurricane harbor and raging waters i lose my mind <laughs> so much water they were wasting and we're in california yeah i think i th- i think that's yeah, that's definitely a thing but like you know like all those fields day after day just spraying is possibly even worse like that just like it looks like there's a lot of water in one place but this is like spread out over like a huge region one of the other issues with water rights, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically, it's kind of like use it or lose it to some extent. 
So farmers are actually disincentivized from conserving water because if they don't use water, then they can't use it the next year. So they want to actually use as much water as possible so that they can maintain all their water rights. And this, I think, is like particularly an issue for like the I think the Colorado River is like this. So it's like if you don't use all your allotment, then you don't get to use it in the future. And it's like you it, so then no one is incentivized to like use less water because they don't want to give up part of their share of the pie to other people. And so this is actually a really tricky question. Like, how can you encourage people to, you know, decrease their use of water? I, I like I'm just making this up, but like, I wonder if there's some sort of like, you know, you could have some kind of like water allotments and it's like, if you don't use it, you have these like credits that you can then sell. So like the state will buy the water right from you. And that would result in you using less water, but then like, would they have to pay you every year for their lot? I don't know. It's a very messy situation. And I think at least for us, like energy and climate wonks, it's like the water world is like even more wild. So. Yeah. So what I was going to say to that is the, the sustainable groundwater management act, I think is trying to put a check on sort of unlimited pumping of water. Although it's a very complicated uh, piece of, of legislation, so like I I couldn't get into it, but I'm pretty sure that was something that was uh, that's in place now. It's, it's supposed to keep a check on on sort of unlimited use of water, but uh, you know I have no idea how how successful that's been. We'll see during the next drought. Well, I think we have used up all of our water budget. I mean, time budget on this section of the interview, and I think we're going to be moving on to the next section. Which Benny, tell you can tell our audience you you have no idea what this is going to be, right? I have no idea what this is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think our audience might already know what it's going to be. It's going to be the peak demand round. So in this section of the interview, we're going to ask you a series of questions. And they're supposed to be fast, okay? It's supposed to be lightning quick. Okay. When I ask you quick, you got to answer quick. You can't think about oh it. Gosh. Don't think about your political career. That political career is on pause here, okay? You're going to let your your true uh, your true emotions come out. No, I'm just kidding. You can oh definitely uh, <laughs> filter yourself as you needed. But are you are you ready to go? Yes. All right, first one's a softball. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Uh, it would be a turtle. No, no. Um, yeah, a turtle. Uh, just because I, I, I love I, I love aesthetically what they look like. My parents are from a little town in Mexico called Las Tortugas, which in English, I'm pretty sure that means tortoises, the tortoises. And so I've always had an affinity for turtles and tortoises. And when I went to Hawaii this year, I saw one for the first time and I was just like in awe. I mean, I, almost, I was almost brought to tears by how beautiful I found wow. it. It's amazing. Kelly, you want to go next? Cool. If you could talk to a version of yourself that's 10 years younger, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Prioritize your health. Good advice. It applies to everyone at all ages of life. Pretty much. I always think like there's like three things, right? You got phys- three aspects of health, I think. Financial health, you got emotional health, and you got physical health. And I think you got to maintain all three, and then you have well-being. Um, um, all right, next question. Something that you used to believe and no longer do. Um, sort of like this, uh, I was, uh, okay. The first thing that came to my mind is, is like this idea of romantic love that there's, uh, you know, one person out there for you. I used to believe that when I was very young, I don't believe that anymore. I think it's, um, like anything, it takes work, it takes practice, it takes commitment, it takes, um, 
you know, all these different variables. Nothing comes easy in this world. So I, I would say that. Hmm. So no more, no more soulmates out there. So if anyone's looking for the soulmate, not here. <laughs> <laughs> we got to work for our love, all right? <laughs> hey, well, I will say is that I would say soulmates do exist, but it's something that you have to work towards, right? It's not something like, oh, once you meet the one person, it's going to be all sunshine and rainbows. But it's something. Have you, have you watched The Good Place? They have, have this oh, whole thing about soulmates. We have a whole thing about The oh. Good Place. Kelly and I bonded <laughs> over the pandemic, over The oh, Good Place. Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> I might, I'm going to check it out now. Um, okay, next question. If you had a magic wand and could make any one policy solution happen, what would it be? Climate policy. And, and and end to climate change, uh, not, that not being an issue anymore. I mean, that'd be number one right away. Any specific policy that would take us there or just uh, wave your magic wand and instantly make all carbon emissions go away? Uh, yeah, magic wand, we're no longer um, reliant on fossil fuels and we're 100% reliant on the cleanest renewables uh, for, for all our energy needs. Love it. It means it looks like we are in a job once Benny gets to office, Kelly. <laughs> we will have a job. Um, all right. Expanding beyond California, what obstacles do you think other agricultural community other agricultural communities will face when trying to implement sustainable agriculture? Equity, equity. It's hard to be equitable with those policies. Uh, I'm trying to right now. So we try to do that with our last le- with uh, with my. Uh, where I interned in my uh, graduate school, California Climate and Agriculture Network, in our uh, sustainable ag bill, uh, there was a provision, $167 million for farm worker safety and well-being, which has never been a policy before. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't signed into law this year. It, was, it, was, it passed the legislature budget, but, you know, it hasn't, it's not law yet. So, Gavin, did he not pull through for us? This is Gavin Newsom. It, it wasn't part of what he signed in the Sustainable Agriculture Park uh, package um, as law, but it was passed in the budget legislature, which means I don't, I'm not sure what that means. Hopefully next year, uh, but yeah, it's not good. It's definitely you know no one's perfect. You know I just kind of take things as they get, like nobody's perfect. You're never gonna get everything that you want, but that's why you gotta keep fighting for 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 the things that you believe in. In the words of Hannah Montana, <laughs> nobody's perfect. We gotta work it again and again till we get the policies that will pr- provide equitable treatment to farm workers and climate justice and uh, 100% renewables, carbon free. <laughs> Amazing. Nice. That's catchy. I like it. Very catchy. Oh, I'm supposed to ask this one. Um, so what lessons do you think that other regions can learn from the Central Valley in terms of sustainable agriculture and climate justice? Uh, I mean, I feel like we're not leaders in it yet, to be honest. I feel like we don't have, we don't have the leadership to be giving other people advice right now. So that's got to be my answer. I mean, I just feel like we, we, we're not leading by example yet. I like it. Honest, you, you're not going to get that from many politicians out here, but you will get it from many. Um, and the last question of our peak demand round, if there are, are there any practices going on elsewhere in the world, in the country, in your backyard, um, that you'd like to see implemented in California? I want immigration reform uh, for the 11 million undocumented people in the United States. We haven't had immigration reform since 1976, um, and it's... 
it's uh, shameful that so many people live in limbo all their lives. And some of them we went to school with. Some of, some of my classmates in Goldman are DACA recipients. Uh, some of the, a lot of the farm workers I worked with were DACA recipients. And actually, 70% of all farm workers, agriculture workers, are estimated, up to 70% are estimated to be undocumented. So it's sort of like, you know, I, I, I'm not into conspiracy theories, but it always feels like, um, the economic powers of, of the United States are actively and want this perpetual exploitation of undocumented labor because it's the cheapest way and it's the most profitable way uh, to prosper in, in their industry. So that's how, you know, that's how this, this long limbo of, of non-action when it comes to immigration reform makes me feel. It makes me feel like it's very deliberate. Well, I would, yeah, I... I definitely feel that as well. And I also think it's like, you know, there's, if Congress's default is to like do nothing anyway, then, you know, it's very frustrating for any of us who want change on literally anything. Like when's the last time that they passed an actual bill that wasn't reconciliation? Well, that's a commentary on our entire national uh, political system, which we do do um, on a weekly basis. So uh... (laughs) Just very on brand there. Well, that that wraps up our peak demand round. Thank you, Benny, for playing along, and hope hopefully you weren't sweating too much in your chair there, um, or said anything. <laughs> so so with that, we brings us to potentially, you know, you know, maybe if we're dreamers here, maybe we can believe in our national political system to actually implement broad climate sweeping policies like a green new spiel. Kelly, would you like to give us our, your, your Green New Spiel for this week? Yeah, so uh, speaking of, what did we say? Uh, commentary on the national political system. So this past weekend, uh, none other than Joe and Joe, Joe's Biden and Manchin had a hangout uh, at Joe Biden's house in Delaware. They, you know, because uh, they're... They're trying to be all buddy buddy. I'm not sure if it was like an actual sleepover. I don't know, but it was like over the Pillow weekend. Fights, fights and, <laughs> and uh, whiskey was probably consumed. Yeah, um, basically Joe Biden's out there with Manchin trying to be like, bro, like what climate policies can you get behind? Please, please, man, come on. <laughs> um, I think Kirsten Kirsten Cinema was there too. Um, You're killing me, man. You're <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's very interesting to hear that at least outwardly, they're like, oh, like we can come to an agreement on something, but it's just, it takes time for the sausage to be made. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Awesome. Well, um, my Green Your Spiel this week is Spooktober themed. We are coming up on Halloween in about six days when we're recording this. This might be actually, this episode will be out there after uh, Halloween is out. So, Spooktober retroactively. Um, I actually watched a YouTube video recently by a YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician, and she had an episode about eco death. Um, and it was, uh, you know, death themed, and it was like talking about how in most of the Western world, people are, when they die, they're buried and they have funerals and all this, and they, and they, they put, they actually take the body. And they pump them full of embalming fluids, which are, um, they have known carcinogens in there, and they're also very bad for the groundwater and for the environment. 
and this is essentially to like preserve their body. And then they stuff that that embalmed body into a wooden casket, which they wooden and a steel casket, which they then stuff into a concrete vault. Um, so there's a lot of uh, materials that go into every dead body that, that goes into the ground. Um, and a lot of these are, you know, bad for the environment when they eventually leak into the ground. Um, so they also prepared other things like crema- cremation, which cremation is like relatively better because you're, um, you're at least, uh, disposing of the body in like a marginally better way, but they still, you still be burning fossil fuels and you also have chances of mercury, mercury pollution from people's dental and bone filings. They actually will get gasified and into the atmosphere and then people and then you talk about environmental justice people who live near these cremation factories are going to be breathing that in so we got another issue there so they have two alternative solutions to to you know funerals they have this thing called aquamation where if you ever watched breaking bad um when they killed um this person in the very first season you know they like they pretty much aqua they like put this guy in like a vat of acid and you know, made him into juice. Um, so that's like one way you could do it, it's aquamation. And, and this is actually how um, lots of vets um, deal with bod- like dead you know, dogs and cats, like poor Fido. Um, but apparently it's, uh, so that's one way of doing it. And it's environmentally very conscious. And another way is um, a natural burial, which is usually just done like in a wicker, wicker coffin, you know, a large wicker basket. And they can put you under the ground and, you know, a tree can bloom from you and you can feed you know, all the, the fungus and the bacteria and the insects that want to feast on your body. Um, and you can actually also get a conservation easement um, put into place. So when you bury your, your body naturally, you can, you can designate a, you know, six foot by three foot plot of land and say this is the, 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 the conservation easement of, of Steve Chan and, and may, him, may he rest in peace here forever. And, you know, so then you can also kind of uh, le- leverage your death to, to uh, preserve some land. So I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. I have a very morbid curiosity sometimes. So um, I thought that was interesting. I wanted to share that with all of y'all. Have you heard of the thing where it's like when you're dead, you can get turned into like a tree? Yeah, yeah. Is that on there? Yeah. That's what I want to do. I want to I wanna be turned into like a, some kind of like fruit tree so that all my descendants can go there and then they'll like go to the tree and like pick a fruit and they'll be like, oh, thanks, great grandma. I don't know. I feel like that's like that. At least it's like interesting. I feel like going to a graveyard is kind of creepy, you know, um, but, you know, they could also like you could go there and also do the. I don't know if you do this, but like the burning the fake money to send to your um, ancestors, um, that's always fun. And then it would be nice to also be able to like pluck some fresh fruit. Yeah. What kind of tree would you be, Benny? And why? <laughs> oh, pro- I, I'd strive to be a giant sequoia because of what it means to the Central Valley. And they're just so beautiful. Like, man, uh, I just, I, fe- I went there, I, w- I saw them. Because oh, so, so one of the sad things is that a lot of the people that grew up in the Central Valley from low-income households, ironically, never see the Yosemite or the Sequoias. But there's people from all over the world that get to visit. So I was pretty old. I was in my 20s when I first saw them, even though they're right there in Tulare County. And I was just really moved, like, uh, you know, by the history of them, that they're only there in our region. And... Uh, you know, this year they were in danger because of the wildfires. So what what better way to continue to contribute to my community than being a, a giant sequoia for them? <laughs> and hopefully you'll get some of your community members to come visit and see the, the glory that is your, your after-death body. <laughs> well, Benny, I we 
we're out of time here. We appreciate so much you coming and taking time out of your busy day, fighting for for your community and and lifting lifting those those peoples and giving them you know a voice. Um, so really appreciate your time here. Um, you can follow Benny on socials? Question mark. Yeah, sure. <laughs> B, uh, at B Corona four seventeen on Instagram, that's fine. On Instagram, follow him on LinkedIn. Follow for the the IG listing stories. Apparently, <laughs> for the motivational, the motivational exercise. Um, thank you again for listening um, to the, the Renewable Generation. I'm Steve Chan. You can follow me at Climate underscore Steve. I'm Kelly Jing. I'm at Kelly M Jing on Instagram. Our podcast is on Twitter at GenRenewPod, or and please make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us, please leave a rating and review. If you don't like us, send us hate mail. Don't leave a rating and review. The hate mail is in public, but the ratings are forever. All right, and thank you all for listening, and have a great rest of your day.